Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. In this episode of this podcast, I'm going to be talking about the largest prison break of the Second World War. In fact, it's one of the largest prison breaks in history. And I can guarantee you're not going to guess where it was. This was not a prison break in Germany, in occupied Europe, even in Britain or Canada. This was a prison break around 100 kilometres north of Canberra in Australia, in New South Wales. West of Sydney, a place called Kaura, which was the largest prisoner of war camp for Japanese prisoners in Australia. On the 5th of August 1944, they took the fights. The Australian guards managed to break out of the camp killed some of their Australian captors and some of the soldiers sent to round them up. It is a truly remarkable story. I'm very grateful to the guest on this podcast for bringing it to my attention. He's Matt McLachlan. He has been on this podcast many times before. He's an Australian podcaster, broadcaster, TV host, author, brilliant guy, tour guide, great friend and great friend of everything we're doing here on the podcast. He's just written a great new book about the Cowra breakout. Please check it out. I had to get him on the podcast to ask all about it. It's brilliant. You can hear more from Matt at the His Living History podcast, or you go to battlefields.com.au to book yourself on a tour with the great man himself. Go and do it. In the meantime, though, folks, this is the story of really the most extraordinary prison breakout in the Second World War. Enjoy. Matt, good to see you, man. How's it going? Great to be here, Dan. It's going well. Uh, I hear it's pretty warm over there in the UK. Well, we are recording this in the middle of July, a couple of weeks before this podcast is broadcast. And yeah, we're all getting very excited because it's temperatures that are approaching the kind of temperatures you might expect to get in Australia. So obviously we're having a national emergency here. Well, it's chilly over here, mate, the middle of winter. So we're, we're doing our best to carry on. Yeah, <laughs> it'll survive. Okay, so tell me about this extraordinary... This is... I, I did not know anything about this story. This is remarkable. I, I guess let's start... With how many Japanese prisoners of war ended up in Australian hands in the early years of the war? Well, it's a fascinating story, isn't it? And the part that I think always gets me is the fact that we were sending these prisoners from so far away to come and keep them actually within Australia. I think most people wouldn't have realised that, that the troops that were being captured by the Australians as far afield as Italians in North Africa, Japanese obviously throughout the Pacific, were then being actually sent back to Australia. So thousands is the answer. There was two or 3,000 Japanese that were eventually being held in Australia during the Second World War, in addition to thousands of Italians, some Germans as well. So we really had the full mix of enemy forces uh, contained here on our shores. Now, I don't want to embrace the cliches, but obviously the Japanese were prone to take their own lives rather than surrender. Is it fair to say they regarded surrender in a way that was different to some of their European allies? And if so, how did that affect the atmosphere, the behaviour of the Japanese prisoners of war? 
Well, it's an important point to make. It's not really a cliche because it absolutely is true that the Japanese were quite indoctrinated in their strict military code that no Japanese person would ever be captured, would ever allow themselves to be captured. They would take their lives before that would occur. And this was a line that the Japanese government used throughout the war. Whenever the Allies would say, let's have a discussion about the treatment of Japanese prisoners in Allied hands, the Japanese would say, well, we don't have to because there are no Japanese prisoners in Allied hands because they won't allow themselves to be captured. So if you can imagine that's the official position, whenever a Japanese person was reported missing on the battlefield, it was just assumed that he'd been killed. His family was told that he'd been killed. His family would hold a memorial service, a funeral for him back at home. And the Japanese soldiers knew this. So the concept that they had been captured when their family had been told that they had been killed was just horrendous to them. And they felt they could never go back to Japan. The shame that would weigh on their families and their communities if they reappeared at the end of the war and had been living out you know, several years of the war in the relative comfort of a prison camp, it was way beyond shame. I mean, the word shame is probably the best example we have in English to sum it up, but it was way beyond that. These men called themselves ghosts. They were trapped between their comrades who'd been killed on the battlefields and a life they could never return to in Japan. So, you know, a horrendous situation for them mentally. And so it's not surprising it bred discontent in the camps. And you mentioned relative comfort there. How were the camps? The camps in Australia were actually pretty good because one of the things that I thought was fascinating about this story was the gulf of understanding that existed between the mentality of the Japanese prisoners and the mindset of the guards and the authorities who were looking after them. So I think the Allies, the mistake we made was we looked at it through our own lens and we felt that if an Allied prisoner was captured by the Germans, for example, in Europe, if he was air crew that was shot down and ended up in a camp, he would know that pretty much he was out of the war unless there was some incredible opportunity to escape and we all know the stories of the Great Escape and other various things. Unless there was that very limited opportunity to escape, an Allied prisoner would say, well, I'm out of the war. I've done my bit. Now I just have to try and keep alive. And they would hope that the Red Cross would provide for them, the German guards would look after them, they would be given food and comfort, and they would wait for the war to end. And that's how we expected the Japanese would respond to capture. And so the feeling was, well, let's look after them. You know, there were a lot of Australian prisoners and allied prisoners in Japanese hands. And the feeling was, if we take care of our prisoners, they will hopefully reciprocate with allied prisoners in Japanese hands. So we gave them food and great shelter. We allowed them leisure time. The Japanese played baseball. They conducted sumo wrestling matches. They built a theatre in the camp. There was lots of leisure activities. They were allowed to write home to their families quite often, but I couldn't find any records that a single Japanese prisoner ever wrote back to his family in Japan. So conditions were actually pretty good for them, especially compared to what they'd been through you know, in the battlefields of the Pacific. So it, it wasn't a terrible life for them here in Australia. It wasn't a terrible life, but we hear a lot about the Japanese prisoner of war camps and the conditions, the barbarity inflicted on the prisoners of war in Japan. What do you make of the way the guards treated them? Who were the guards and how did they treat the Japanese? Well, it's a really interesting part of the story that at this camp, the one we're talking about, firstly, there were about seven prisoner of war camps throughout Australia. Most people don't even realise that, that we had this number of prison camps. The one we're talking about at Cowra in New South Wales was garrisoned by the 22nd Garrison Battalion. And these were quite a mix of men. They were men considered, for whatever reason, inappropriate for frontline service. So they were either too old. There was a lot of World War I men who maybe had missed service in the First World War and now were too old to fight in the second. 
there were men who had been fighting but had been wounded or evacuated ill and were now not fit to go back to the front lines, or just men for who, whatever reason, the army still wanted to hang on to them but didn't think they were fit for frontline service. So a pretty mixed mob, and it wasn't considered a particularly auspicious gig to be guarding a bunch of Japanese in the middle of the bush in Australia compared to fighting on the front lines of the Pacific. So the guards were a fairly mixed group. There was a feeling in my research, there was a strong feeling that there was a lot of resentment against the Japanese. They'd heard all the propaganda. You know, they probably had relatives fighting. They might have had brothers fighting on the front. They might have lost brothers or they might have already encountered the Japanese themselves and been wounded by the Japanese. So there was a lot of animosity towards the Japanese prisoners. But it doesn't seem to have been acted on. It doesn't seem that the guards took much retribution against the Japanese in the time that they guarded them, until, of course, the Japanese decided to turn everything on its head and break out of the camp. Before I do, I need to ask you, like as a historian, what are the sources here? Were you lucky enough to have sources on the Japanese side as well as the Australian? Japanese side, there were a couple of very good manuscripts written, a couple of really good memoirs written by the Japanese, which provided just a really great insight into the mindset of the prisoners. So there were two or three really good memoirs that I used as a source. But overall, that was a difficult part of the picture, that a lot of the Japanese, the vast majority of the Japanese who had been through this captivity, for the rest of their lives, even though they'd survived the war, often didn't even tell their family and friends that they'd been a prisoner. They usually would lie about it and say, I was just fighting in New Guinea for that whole time, even though their family knew that the fighting in New Guinea had ended years earlier. So the majority of the prisoners never admitted that they'd been captured. They never told their stories. So we're lucky that a small handful were brave enough to put their stories down on paper. From the Australian side, we have a lot of information. There were several military inquiries, We have a lot of the guards who wrote memoirs. A lot of the people in the town were interviewed about their experience when this occurred. So there's a lot of sources on the Australian side, not so many on the Japanese, but the few that we have are excellent. Okay, so tell me about early August 1944. So you've got, what, 4,000 prisoners in the camp. And uh, what happens? Well, I think the thing we should remember about this, Dan, the most important point about this is this is not like the great escape from a Starlag camp. Even though it's a technically a prison break and one of the largest prison breaks in history, it was not about freedom. That's the first thing to say. So this action that occurred at Cowra in the early hours of the 5th of August 1944 was a battle in every sense of the word. The Japanese wanted to take the war back to the Australians. And basically, there were about 1,100 Japanese in one compound in the camp. It was severely overcrowded. There were a lot of rumours the Japanese were discontent and were intending to do something about it. There was an informant who told the Australian guards the Japanese were planning something. And so the Australians made the decision to move the bulk of the prisoners out of the camp to another camp at the town of Hay and to basically separate the Japanese prison population to ward off this trouble. The Japanese got wind of it from the Australian guards and decided that they had to take action. So early on that morning at about 2am on the 5th of August, 1944, the Japanese launched an attack on the Australian guards. So they attacked in three main groups. They charged at a machine gun, which they tried to capture to turn on the Australian guards. About 300 of them broke out of the camp, actually got through the fences and broke out into the bush. And a large number of them just charged the guards in the middle of the camp. And the Australians opened fire. And effectively, over several hours, there was just a a huge battle with the Japanese armed with baseball bats and knives, charging wire and machine guns and the Australians opening fire. So by the time the smoke had cleared and it took more than a week to round up the last of the escapees, and by the time the whole thing had settled down, 234 Japanese were killed in the breakout. 
and five Australians. So again, you, you tell this story to people. Most people have never heard of it. And yet that's a huge loss of life. That was, this was a, one of the most dramatic incidents of the Second World War. One of the only ones of its type that occurred in the entire war and just a, an unbelievable story that most people don't know about. It is extraordinary. Did they enjoy any local tactical success or was it sort of, did they manage to grab the odd machine gun or was it really a kind of very one-sided slaughter? It certainly was one-sided. Whenever you've got people armed with bread knives, charging machine guns, it's always only going to have one result. But again, we have to remember what the Japanese were trying to achieve. And even for decades, people who did know the story couldn't quite understand it. They thought, well, why would they break out? They were well-fed and they were warm. I grew up in that area in a small town near Kara, and my grandparents remembered the breakout from the days of the war. And they told me that they thought the Japanese were trying to get back to Japan. They didn't realise how far they were from Japan and were trying to link up with their comrades to continue the fighting. What we now know is that's not the case. It's somewhere in between. It wasn't a suicide charge in that sense. They did want to take the fight to the Australian Guards but they also hoped that they would meet a noble death in the enterprise. So the loose tactical plan was the Japanese were going to capture a machine gun, which was near the perimeter fence. They were going to turn that on the Australian guards and basically take over the entire prisoner of war camp. And then they were going to launch an attack on an army training camp, an entire separate Australian army training camp that was a couple of kilometres down the road. So it was a very grand scheme. And uh, the basic idea was at some stage during this big endeavour, we will kill as many Australian soldiers as we can before we ourselves are killed and erase the shame that we've been carrying for years since we were captured on the battlefield. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the biggest prison breakout in the Second World War. More coming up. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, 
Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's put some names to this. I was so fascinated by some of the individuals you've picked out, including the first prisoner of war who was captured by the Australians in the Second World War. Tell me a little about him and and his role. Yeah, this is a really iconic story. And again, the little threads of history just coming together. Because you and I know, Dan, we tell these stories in isolation. We're here talking about one night in 1944. But for the people involved, there was a whole tapestry of events that led to this this moment when they all came together. And the man you're talking about, Hajime Toyishima, he's probably no better example. He was a young man. He was a zero fighter pilot flying off aircraft carriers. And I discovered during the research for the book that he actually flew at Pearl Harbor, which was extraordinary. So he was flying combat air patrol over the aircraft carriers while the attack at Pearl Harbor was going on. He then flew on a couple of operations around Wake and in other areas of the Pacific. And then he also participated in the big Japanese attack, the first Japanese attack on Australia on the 19th of February, 1942, when the Japanese bombed Darwin. So the same aircraft carrier fleet that had bombed Pearl Harbor 10 weeks earlier now came down and attacked Darwin. And Toishima was a zero pilot flying his fighter in that attack and was shot down and crash landed his plane. And it was captured by local Aboriginal people on a remote island off Darwin. And uh, he became Australia's first Japanese prisoner of the war. And this is, again, bearing in mind, this is in February 1942, he was captured and eventually ended up in Cowra. And the breakout didn't occur until 1944. So he was a prisoner for two years before this breakout occurred. And he was the camp leader for a long time. He spoke good English. He'd learned English while he was in captivity. And he was a key instigator of the Cowra breakout. And he actually had an army bugle that he'd smuggled into the camp and he blew the bugle. And that was the signal for the uh, breakout to occur. Incidentally, that bugle is now in the collection of the Australian War Memorial. So when you go to the War Memorial in Canberra, you can see that bugle that Toyshima blew. And uh, he was wounded during the breakout. And then either he had a knife with him and either asked one of his friends to finish him off. He was shot and asked one of his friends to finish him off or actually cut his own throat. So pretty gory but sort of brave stuff. And there's so many stories like this. Uh, One of the things I really enjoyed during the telling of this story in the book was to explore the stories of each of those men before the breakout. Their role in the breakout was was pretty important and pretty instrumental and an amazing part of the story, but they, most of them had done so much more even the, before the breakout occurred. So just like I love doing, telling personal stories, that's what that's what really brings this history to life. Well, give us another one. Just give us another one that you've come across. I mean, it must be so exciting because this is something that hasn't really been written up before, right? So this is, yeah. people use the expression forgotten history, but you're reconnecting us with a remarkable bit of history here. Tell us another story about a, a person that you've been very struck by. I should say there were a couple of good books written about this probably in the 60s, particularly a guy called uh, Harry Gordon did some amazing research which revealed this for the first time. So I'm following on the good work that's been done before me. But uh, probably the other story that strikes me, one of the Australians was a, a lieutenant called Harry Doncaster. And he actually worked, he was a training officer at the military training camp, not the prisoner of war camp, but the other camp that I mentioned, the training camp. And the day or well, the afternoon of the breakout, so the Japanese broke out about 2am. And then for the rest of the day, there was a search to try and round up prisoners. 
late on that day, Harry Doncaster led a group of about 20 young recruits out to round up Japanese prisoners. And Dan, it's just one of those things where you shake your head when you read these stories. You can't quite believe it. But because these were recruits who were not fully trained, their commanders felt that it would be unsafe to equip them with rifles and have them roam around the countryside. So the recruits, the 20 recruits that Harry Doncaster led were armed only with bayonets in scabbards, so only carrying a bayonet in their hand. And Harry Doncaster, as their officer, was ordered not to take any weapon at all. He was completely unarmed leading these men. And they encountered a group of Japanese in the bush and the young blokes armed only with bayonets, of course, couldn't do much when Japanese came at them with baseball bats in the scrub. And so most of them turned tail and ran, as you would imagine that they would. And Harry Doncaster was last seen throwing rocks at the Japanese and then eventually fighting them with his fists as they overwhelmed him. And uh, he was beaten and stabbed to death in the bush. And it's just one of those stories. You just shake your head. How could they send soldiers out to round up dangerous Japanese prisoners? Several Australians had already been killed in the breakout, and yet they, they sent them, him out completely unarmed. It's just just a ludicrous. You just shake your head. Just a ludicrous situation. What kind of terrain is it around there? You mentioned the scrub. You grew up around there. What, was it particularly difficult? Was it an easy place to evade capture? Uh, it probably was. It's kind of funny about Cowra. Is it, it's all farmland. There's not a lot of features except for farms in the area. But the nature, it's quite hilly countryside and very rocky for whatever reason. I'm not a geologist would probably be able to tell me why there's huge boulders throughout the countryside. But whenever you drive through that area, I'm always amazed how rocky the terrain is. And this action in which Harry Doncaster was killed occurred on a sort of a scrub covered hillside with big boulders and the Japanese kind of emerged from the trees and behind the boulders. So just as dark was falling, it was winter in Australia, so it got dark pretty early probably about five o'clock in the afternoon. So night was falling. The young recruits were terrified of the Japanese. The Japanese had already killed, as I said, several Australians. Uh, Three Australians had been killed in the camp during the breakout. So they knew that these were armed and fanatical men. And then the Japanese, you know, emerged from behind these boulders and from out of these trees and sort of overwhelmed them. So just frightening stuff. And how long before all the Japanese were recaptured? Well, this was a fascinating, again, part of the story that the people of Kaura knew something was going on. They'd heard all the shooting, but there was a big cover up from the authorities because they didn't want the Japanese to know that there'd been a big breakout, that all these people had been killed. And so there was a big cover up. And so even the people in the town weren't really informed about what was going on. But it took them nine days to round up the last of the Japanese escapees. So of the 300 or so who broke out of the camp, most of the Japanese who were killed were killed within the camp. They never got out. But of the 300 or so who did break out of the camp, it took nine days to round them all up. And a lot of the ones that had escaped out of the camp committed suicide. A couple of them threw themselves in front of a train, which was dramatic and pretty horrendous. A lot of them committed suicide. But a lot of them just hung out in the bush, waited to be rounded up, spent freezing nights without food and just really waiting for the authorities to come and round them up. And there's a number of interesting stories about interactions with civilians as well. The one thing we should say is the Japanese had a very strict code when they planned the breakout all the prisoners were informed that you do not harm civilians this is an attack against people in uniform so no civilians were harmed during the breakout but there's a number of really fascinating stories about japanese escapees basically just walking up and knocking on the doors of farms and asking for food and blankets and and farmers letting them in there's one famous story about while the farmer's wife gave them leftover lamb chops from last night's dinner the husband rang the camp and said come out and round up i've got a couple of japanese here for you to round up so there were again really interesting stories about the local people who in most instances were fairly compassionate to the japanese that they encountered there didn't seem a huge amount of animosity in spite of the fear that there were japanese warriors roaming the countryside so that was a really interesting part of the story 
did anything change for them after the breakout in terms of their conditions? Or were they treated less harshly and more harshly, divided up? What happened? Yeah, it was interesting. The I said it in the book that the fight seemed to go out of them after the breakout. So even though they'd been fanatical about wanting to die, you know, and now they'd been denied this sort of noble death twice and they'd been captured by their enemy twice in the war. So you would think that that would compound the problem. But it, it seemed to, once they'd taken action and lost so many friends and seen so many friends either killed or commit suicide, the fight seemed to go out of them. So ironically, the incident that prompted the breakout was this suggestion that they'd be moved to the camp at Hay. But in the course of the breakout, they'd caused so much damage to their own camp. They'd burnt down a lot of their sleeping huts and caused so much damage to the camp that after the breakout, they were moved to Hay anyway because there was nowhere to keep them in Cowra anymore. So the bulk of the prisoners moved to Hay Camp where they spent the rest of the war, another year or so in captivity until the war ended. And uh, sending Japanese home, Japanese prisoners, sending them home after the war wasn't a high priority. So it was 1946 before most of them uh, got back to Japan. And again, some of them, most of them, never told the story of their captivity or the breakout. Some did. The Japanese that survived and went back to Japan formed an association where survivors of the Kaura breakout could come together once a year, but only a small number of men, only a couple of dozen men ever joined that association. Most of them just melted back into Japanese civilian life and never spoke of the the ordeal in Kaura. There might be one or two still alive somewhere. There is one left. I met him at the 75th anniversary in Kaura. He was 98 at the time and he came back because we should say that the people of Kaura have done a wonderful job of reconciliation. There is a very strong association between Kaura and Japan. And in fact, the only Japanese war cemetery outside of Japan is in the town of Kaura with uh, all the men that were killed in the breakout, plus every other Japanese national who died in Australia during the war. They're now all brought together in Kaura. And there's a beautiful Japanese garden, which is a sort of a living monument to the men who died on both sides. So the people of Kaura do a really good job remembering it. And over the years, over the decades, many Japanese survivors have come back to pay their respects at the camp, in the gardens and in the cemetery. But as I said, most of the prisoners uh, never did, but uh, enough did and family members came back for us to remember and to cross that bridge of reconciliation. Would that garden be on the banks of the Lachlan River, Matt McLaughlin? <laughs> it's not far away. It's not far away from the Lachlan. So uh, Governor Lachlan Macquarie, who stamped his name on just about everything in the early part of the uh, 19th century, got his name on the river as well, out at Cowra. So anyone who's been to Sydney knows that half the uh, sites in Sydney are named after Lachlan Macquarie. They're called Lachlan or Macquarie. And even the river way out in the middle of uh, New South Wales near Cowra, he got his name on that as well. So uh, he's everywhere. He's hard to avoid. And, that's, and your second name's just a coincidence, I guess. Yeah, it is indeed. Um, proud Scottish heritage, you know, from the Highlands of Scotland. Argyll's here in Scotland, so. You went to the right place. Exactly. Thanks, dude. That was amazing. The book is out now in Australia and the UK. What is it called? It's called The Cowra Breakout. It's a pretty straightforward title. And it's been a pleasure to tell this story because it is, as you said, we don't want to talk too much about forgotten history, but it is a story that has probably slipped through the cracks a little bit and I've really enjoyed telling. Great, man. Well, I'm looking forward to meeting you in the flesh when you come back to the UK this autumn. See you soon. Cheers, Dan. Good to talk to you. Thanks, folks. You've made the another episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there and do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.